0: You're listening to the Bridges Nashville podcast. Bridges is a house church movement meeting in homes all across Music City. To find a house church near you or to find other ways to support or get involved, go to BridgesNashville.com. You can't judge a book by its cover. February is Black History Month, and so I thought I would share a pretty amazing story about someone that you may have never heard of before. She was America's first self-made black millionaire, and she became known as California's mother of civil rights. Born in the age of slavery in 1814, Mary Ellen Pleasant learned how to read and write at a young age while working in Massachusetts. Later on in her life, in 1852, during the gold rush, she moved out to San Francisco where she worked as a domestic servant and a chef for wealthy businessmen. And as she worked for these wealthy businessmen, She would often overhear conversations about investments and money-making schemes, and take note. You see, the wealthy businessmen in the room paid no attention to Mary Ellen because of her age, her status, and her color, and yet she was almost in an undercover way picking up valuable investing tips. Now, she earned about $500 a month as a cook, and she took most of those earnings and invested into real estate, in particular, gold and silver mines. And she took the earnings from those investments and bought up a bunch of local businesses, laundromats in particular. And she met Thomas Bell, a local bank clerk, and together they went into business and amassed a fortune that would be worth well over $800 million today. Mary Ellen used her wealth to transport slaves to freedom in the northern states and Canada with the Underground Railroad. She was often overlooked because of her status and her color But Mary Ellen Pleasant proved to be a powerful force for change in the 1800s. You can't judge a book by its cover. Today we continue our series, Good Advice for Hard Times, coming out of the book of James. And in the past couple of weeks, we've been in James chapter 1, and we've talked about suffering and temptation. And today we move into the second chapter. And I want you to remember that James is writing this to the early church, mostly Jewish converts to Christianity. In fact, James was the first recorded book in the New Testament, written about 45 AD, just about a decade after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. And so here's what James had to say to the early church. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Okay, I could stop right there and we could all just go home. Well, I probably realize you're watching from home, but I digress. Uh, Listen, this is so important. James was the half-brother of Jesus, half-brother because they shared the same mom, Mary, but they had different dads. Uh, James' father was Joseph, Jesus' father was God, you get my drift. And so James is Jesus' half-brother. I mean, if anyone could play the favoritism and preference game, it would have been James. Have you ever ridden the coattails of, su- of success from a sibling or a family member or a friend? Yeah, we all have. My brother happens to be a pilot, and so every now and then I'll get that free flight status. Appreciate you, Nate. Uh, hey, I just call that favor. Nothing wrong with that. But James, Jesus' half-brother, could have easily used his status to be a big deal in the early church, but he completely flipped that notion on its head. Let's read on. In James chapter two, verses two through five, we catch a glimpse of exactly what James is talking about. He says, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. Now, if you, if you pay special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges With evil thoughts. Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? Now, here in Nashville, this message hits pretty close to home, doesn't it? I can remember my touring musician days where I would always play the you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back card. You get me this gig or this meeting, and I'll be sure to pay you back. And oftentimes, we'll turn away someone just because we don't think that they can do anything for us. And we'll take a certain coffee or lunch meeting with a person with an agenda, not to get to know them or to serve them or to love them, but to get something from them that can benefit us. Am I preaching to anyone today? Listen, I understand that in the professional business world, you've got to network sometimes. And there are actual networking events out there to help you take that next step in your career where you can meet people. The big thing that I'm getting at today is to let relationship and not agenda be your motivation. Uh, People can always tell if you're genuinely trying to get to know them or if you simply want something from them. Everything changes when you go from saying what can you do for me to what can I do for you? Or in other words, I don't want anything from you. I just want everything for you. This wrong mentality has even sometimes crept into the church. I've actually had people tell me that they go to this church or that church based on who is in attendance, based on who's sitting in that front row. And my friends, this is precisely what James is warning about in chapter two. The only attendance that you should ever care about when you're choosing which church to be a part of is if Jesus is the guest of honor. We can't look at church as a place to build our network. It's a place to build authentic relationships. And what I've seen throughout my life is if you value relationships and loving, serving, encouraging, honoring one another, you're going to find favor. There's not a name that you need that God doesn't have. He's got a pretty big Rolodex. When you focus on being a friend to all, God tends to line up who you need to meet and where you need to be. In the words of Mark Batterson, don't seek opportunity, seek God. And when you do that, opportunity will seek you. Showing partiality is showing judgment. You're judging a person's value. And the truth is we are all The same value in God's eyes. All of us were worth the cross. We are all his children. We're all his favorites. Hey, right now, let's have a little bit of fun. In the comments, how many of you grew up with one or more siblings? Go ahead and let us know. Okay, now, how many of you will admit that you were your parents' favorite child? All right, now comment below if you know that your other sibling was your parents' favorite child. It's all good. See, this proves what a Time Magazine article a few years back said. That parents play favorites. They won't admit it, but they do. And if you were not your parent's favorite, you have no problem telling the world because you still carry that injustice with you even though it's been so many years from your childhood. And if you were the favorite, you tend to keep a little quiet about it, don't you? For one of two reasons. Either you know it's wrong and you feel guilty, or you know you've got a good thing going and you don't wanna mess it up. Now I love both of my kids, but if I just had to choose one, just kidding! I'm just seeing if you're still with me today. Listen, both of my kids are my favorites. I'm fortunate to have a son and a daughter, and so when I tell Moses you're my favorite boy in the entire world, it doesn't make Nora jealous because right after that I make sure she knows that she's my favorite girl in the whole world. Isn't it amazing to know you're God's favorite? We all are. God's love isn't dependent on social status, gender, background, ethnicity, or any other factor. His love is unconditional, so don't put conditions on it. James in chapter two is calling out these early believers for sowing special treatment to the rich and telling the poor to take a lower seat. Verse 5 tells us that God actually chooses those who are poor in the world's eyes to be rich in faith. And this is just par for the course in the kingdom of God. See, we've got it backwards most of the time, don't we? In the kingdom of God, the first is last and the last shall be first. Jesus said, blessed are the persecuted, the meek, and the poor, for they will inherit the kingdom and yet if there's three things that our culture tries to avoid at all costs, it's being poor and meek and persecuted. God uses the foolish to shame the wise. He opposes the proud and he doesn't want us playing preferences with his other kids. If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing what is right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Now, this is commonly known today as the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do to you, but it's really the royal law. In fact, the Greek word used here is basilicon, and it means the supreme and sovereign law, the rule of the king and the kingdom. It's the law of love, and this needs to be the foundation of our lives, to love your neighbor as yourself. James, right here, is actually quoting his brother Jesus. Matthew 22 Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus said, everything hinges on love. And James repeats that. In fact, if you focus on loving your neighbor, there's not gonna be any room for judgment, partiality, or preference. Okay, so, so far we've read in James 2 what not to do. Don't show favoritism. We've read what to do. Love your neighbor as yourself, that royal law. Now let's move on to the how. Verses 12 and 13. So whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. Now, the NIV translation actually reads, mercy triumphs over judgment. Let that sink in today. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What kind of a judge would you want to try your case if you were found guilty on an offense? Would you want a judge that was known for harsh judgment or one that was known for showing mercy? I love this old story about two college roommates. They were best friends, John and Chris. Now, John was quickly excelling in law school, found himself rising to the top of his class, while his friend Chris was not doing so well in school. He didn't have the social life that John had, and eventually he started skipping his classes. Now, John went on to graduate law school and became a highly respected lawyer, and eventually became a well-known judge. While his friend Chris dropped out during his junior year, had a series of dead-end jobs, and eventually got involved in the wrong crowd. Chris's bad decisions landed him in court one day when he was caught on a pretty serious offense. And of all the people to run into that day, who was seated before him as the judge but his old college roommate, John? Now, Chris had a lot of evidence stacked up against him that was pretty overwhelming, so he pleaded guilty on all charges. John, the judge, faced the same dilemma that God faces with us. He was a judge, and so he had to be just. He couldn't simply let his old friend off without any consequence. On the other hand, he wanted to be merciful because he loved his old friend, Chris. So John, the judge, fined Chris the penalty due for his crime. That was justice. Then he got out of the judge's seat, went down to his friend, pulled out his checkbook, and wrote a check to cover the entire penalty. That was mercy. Here's the definition of mercy. Compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus tells his disciples a story that hits on the themes of favoritism, mercy, and love all in one. It's a story about a man who was on his way to Jericho, and on the road, he was robbed, beaten, stripped of his clothes, and left for dead. And he's laying there on the road, gasping for his last breaths of air when a priest comes by. Oh, but the priest avoids him and moves to the other side of the street and keeps walking. Next, a Levite comes by and does the exact same thing. But then one of those people that nobody really liked in the Jewish culture at the time, a Samaritan, comes by, helps the victim, treats his wounds, takes him to a hotel and pays for his stay. And Jesus asked his listeners, who is the true neighbor in this story? They answered, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Show mercy to all. Have grace for people. Every now and then you may get taken advantage of, but trust me, it will always come back to help you and for your good in the end when you show grace and when you show mercy, you reap what you sow." when you've got dirt on someone and it's within your power to pay them back, lay down your sword. We're gonna talk more about the power of words in the next couple of weeks. Next week, Pastor David preaches and then on March 7th at our first Sunday gathering, Jamia is gonna bring the word about words. Listen, your words can speak judgment or they can speak mercy. And James is telling us, the measure that you show to others is the measure that will be shown to you. Once again, he's referencing Jesus. In Matthew seven, verses one and two, do not judge others, Jesus said, and you will not be judged, for you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. Jesus is telling us not to judge, but he knows that it's pretty much impossible for us not to judge, right? I mean, every day you're gonna make judgments over people and over situations. I mean, this past week, I made a poor judgment to drive on the ice. I nearly got in a car accident because of that judgment, but don't worry, I'm all good. Uh, But with our neighbors, our friends, and our coworkers, Jesus is saying, if you're going to judge, just remember, however you judge others is how you will be judged. So show mercy, show grace, love your neighbor, and don't show partiality or prejudice, remember, mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these words in James' letter to the early church. Help us not to show favoritism or partiality to your kids, but help us to live by the law of love. God, give us a greater measure through your Holy Spirit and a greater capacity to love our neighbor as you loved us. Right now, I just wanna pray for anyone who's never taken that step of faith. This is where it starts, when you make Jesus the Lord of your life. Listen, mercy triumphs over judgment. All of us, because of sin, deserve the ultimate penalty. And that is separation from God, that is death. But Jesus took on that penalty when he died for us on the cross. And he gives us this free gift of salvation and it's yours. Romans tells us that anyone who believes in their heart and confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord will be saved. And so I wanna encourage you today, if you've never taken that step, text the number that you see on the bottom of the screen, shoot me an email, I would love to meet you for coffee and pray with you and tell you about the greatest decision that you could ever make in this life, a decision for Jesus. Father, for anyone watching right now who takes that first step of faith, I pray that your love would fill their room and fill their hearts right now in the mighty name of Jesus. God, we love you so much. Help us to love others as you love us. We pray all of this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Bridges Nashville podcast. To stay up to date on everything going on at Bridges, you can find us online at facebook.com slash Bridges Nashville or at Bridges Nashville on Instagram.